All right, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. That's where we'll be this morning. We're continuing our, our study of 1 Peter. And just to review for you guys, what is 1 Peter all about? That's the big idea of 1 Peter. It's all about the good life. Peter is teaching us, he's helping us to understand the good life, the life that is full of joy and peace and significance, the life that we all want to live. Peter is helping us to understand where do you find that life, the good life. Now, last week and for the next four weeks, we're going to be discovering from Peter the essential ingredients of the good life. That's the section that we're in right now. Peter is laying out for us six essential ingredients of the good life. You cannot experience the good life from God unless you pursue these six things. We got the first two last week. We started with hope. Hope is is about a mindset. It's about how you think. Peter challenged us to fix our hope on what we will receive from Jesus when we see him face to face. That should be our attitude. That's how our mindset should be characterized. That's where the good life starts, in the mind. And then once we have our mind in the right place, setting our hope upon seeing Jesus, then Peter challenges our behavior. In the broadest possible way, he challenges us, be holy as your heavenly father is holy. And remember, holiness, it refers to our obedience to the father in every area of life. It refers to our actions, into our words, into our thoughts, into our motives. In every way, we should obey the father. So Peter starts broad, this overarching command to holiness. And then starting in this week's passage and for the next few passages, Peter is going to challenge us in specific areas. He started broad, now he gets narrow. He challenges us in specific commands that we need to follow, specific behaviors we need to practice if we want to experience the good life that God has designed for us. And he starts with love. Look with me starting in verse 22 of chapter 1. Peter says, since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. The third essential ingredient of the good life is love one another. Love one another. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, you know, God wants us to love all people. Not just our brothers and sisters in Christ, but the whole world. We're to love everyone. But what God cares most about is our love in here. Our love for fellow believers, our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's where God wants us to focus this morning, our love for one another. Now, if you're anything like me, you have been hearing this command, love one another, for like your whole life. You started hearing it back from your parents when you were a little kid, and then you heard it from your Sunday school teacher, and then you heard it from your pastor. You have heard innumerable sermons about love one another. You've heard it a million times, kind of got that licked, so you're tempted to tune this sermon out. Before you do that, Let me remind you of a little lesson I learned in the greatest sports movie ever made, the movie Hoosiers. If you've not seen Hoosiers, you need to go home and watch it today. It's it's that awesome. Um, Hoosiers, it tells the true story of the Milan Indians, a, a basketball team from a small town in Indiana, and their improbable rise to the state championship back in 1954. And they started the season as an undisciplined and unsuccessful squad. They couldn't do anything right, but they got this new coach played by Gene Hackman, and, and he schools them in the fundamentals of the game. He makes them practice the basics, dribbling and passing over and over and over again. The whole move, they're practicing dribbling and passing. He won't even let them shoot the ball until they've passed a sufficient number of times. He disciplines them into the fundamentals of the game until they become the most disciplined and successful squad in the whole state. And here's the lesson. 
And the Christian life, as in basketball, we never outgrow the fundamentals. The basic things of the Christian life, you can never go deep enough. You can never go far enough. Success in our lives is determined by our practice of the fundamentals. And there's nothing more fundamental than love. If you want to live the good life, the life that God designed for you, you have to keep going deeper, keep going further in your love for one another. So that's what we're going to do this morning. I know you've heard this command before. We're going to take it further this morning as we grow to love one another more and more fully. So that's where we're going to begin. Let's start by asking ourselves the question, what is love? What is this word all about? What does love mean? Well, in ancient Greek, the Greeks actually had multiple words to refer to love. In in secular Greek, the most common words that they would use were ophile, that's a love based on affection or fondness for a person, and eros, that's that's an erotic love or sexual love for another person. Those were the two things that the Greeks always had in their mind when they talked about love. That's what they usually talked about, the romantic or sexual love between a man and a woman. That was what was predominant in their minds. That's kind of similar to society today, isn't it? If you go ask the average American, what is love? They will probably give you an answer that indicates they're thinking about romantic or sexual love between a man or a woman. That's what society usually thinks of when it hears the word love. But we actually find something very different in Scripture. I want to give you a a few facts about the New Testament. In the New Testament, in the Greek of the New Testament, God very, very rarely uses the word ophile, a love based on affection or fondness, and he never uses the word eros. He, He has nothing to say to us about that in the New Testament. That's not where God wants us to focus. That's not the primary thing he means by love. In the NASB Bible, the New Testament, you will find the word love 287 times in the New Testament. And of those 287 times, guess how many times it refers to the love between a man and a woman? Five times. Five out of 287 times when God uses love, he's talking about the love of a man for a woman. That's only 1.7% of the occurrences of the word love in the New Testament refer to the love between a man and a woman. That's that's not where God wants us to focus. 98.3% of the time, he's talking about something else. Usually the love of God for us or our love for God or our love for one another, especially believers, that's what God cares most about. That's where he wants us to focus. I draw a couple conclusions for that. First of all, for you who are single, know that you're only missing out on 1.3% of the New Testament. (laughs) Only 1.3% of the times that God refers to love are you not included. 98.3% of the time, it applies completely to you. So you're missing out on very little of what God has to say about love. Second conclusion I draw. We live in a society that has hijacked the word love. They've taken what love means and they've made it to only refer to romantic or sexual love between a man or a woman. That's not what God has in mind by the word love. They've totally missed the boat. They've missed what's most important about love because they've gotten so caught up with romance and sex. You you cannot learn what love means from society, from the TV, from movies, from books. You can't learn what love means because they've totally missed the boat. We've got to look at what God means by love. What does he have in his mind when he uses the word love? That's what we're going to do today. We're going to really dig into what God means by this word. Now, in the verse we looked at, verse 22, Peter actually uses two different Greek words for love. The first word is Philadelphia, from which we get the name of our city up in the Northeast. It means brotherly love, familial love, your your love for your siblings by birth, your siblings by blood. 
Now, in the New Testament, that, that word is expanded a bit to include your love for your spiritual siblings, for your brothers and sisters in Christ. God expands the use of that word because he wants us to love one another just like we love our actual siblings, our brothers and sisters. Uh, He's trying to teach us that our love for one another should be as unconditional and lifelong as our love for our actual siblings is. How do we love our siblings? I I have a younger brother. His name is Matt. He's three years younger than me. And like any younger brother, uh, he was born with the unique ability to push my buttons. He knows exactly how to anger me and frustrate me. And, and one day when we were, when we were growing up, uh, there was a particular day with, with lots of button pushing and, and I was really frustrated and I, I grew really angry at my brother. And so I picked up what happened to be at hand and I flung it at him. Now, unfortunately for Matt, we were in the garage standing next to my dad's tool bench. And what was close to me was this stone grinding wheel off my dad's Dremel. Turns out it's a pretty good weapon. Hit my brother right above, the, right above the eyebrow here and left a gash that he still has today. Now, if my brother and I were just acquaintances, that would have been the end of the relationship. Right there, he'd never want to see me again. Now, actually, he's a lawyer today, so probably he would want to see me to sue me. <laughs> sue me for emotional trauma, which, which I would lose that suit because I did cause him trauma on that day. But fortunately for me, Matt and I are not acquaintances. We're brothers. So he forgave me. And he stayed in my life and we have grown to love one another. We're very close with one another because that's the nature of brotherly love. You bear with one another. You forgive one another. You stay in each other's lives. That's how God wants us to love one another unconditionally and lifelong, just like you love your siblings. That's the first word that Peter uses. The second word is agape. Uh, This word agape for love, it was very rarely used in Greek society. Secular Greeks, they very rarely spoke about agape. They were much more busy talking about ophile or eros. They hardly ever used this word. When they did use it, it always referred to the the highest and most noble form of love. A love that chooses to see incredible value in the one who is loved, to regard that person as precious. That's agape love. They hardly ever spoke of that. Not surprisingly, the New Testament speaks all the time about that. That's what God cares about. The highest, most noble form of love. Almost every time you see love in the New Testament, it's agape. That's what God means by it. It's often used of God's own love. The love within the Trinity, the love that binds Father, Son to Spirit. That's agape love, the noblest form of love. It's also used of God's love for us, for sinful human beings. That's agape love. And when we look at the example of God, we can arrive at a definition Agape means devoted, unconditional love that is expressed in self-sacrifice. The essence of agape love is self-sacrifice. Think about it. You have the son sacrificing his life out of love for the father. You have the father sacrificing his son out of love for us. Agape love is costly love. It is love that expresses itself in sacrifice. Jesus himself spoke of that. In John chapter 15, he says, greater love, greater agape has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. That's the definition of agape love, a love that sacrifices self, a love that sacrifices my rights, my desires, my possessions, my comfort, even my own physical life for the good of the one I love. That's agape, always sacrificing what is mine for the sake, for the good of the one I love. That type of love is not based on a a feeling or an emotion because emotions and feelings may change. This kind of love is a committed love. It's based on a choice, 
Agape love is a choice to so value the person that you love that you're willing to give up what's yours for their good. That's agape love. Feelings and emotions may follow that. They do for God. He does emotionally love us too. But, but his love is not based on an emotion. It's based on a choice to so highly value us that he sacrifices self for our good. That's agape love. We are always sacrificing what is ours for the good of the one we love. That's agape love. Peter goes on to describe that love further in verse 22. He calls it enduring. That's what, in the NES, he has the word fervently. That's what fervently means. That you, you love enduringly. You love without end. Your love is unconditional. There is no condition in which you would withdraw your love from the person who's loved. Paul talks about love in the same language in the most famous chapter on love and anywhere in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says of agape love, that it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Agape love is a love without end. It's not love today, but then you do something that frustrates me and I withdraw. If, if you withdraw it, then it's not agape love. Agape love is non-refundable. It cannot be withdrawn. It is always unconditionally upon the object who is loved. It is an enduring love. Next thing that Peter says about this love, it is, it is sincere. It is a love that comes from the heart. From the inside, it's, it's not a love that is for the sake of show. It's not an act. It's not a love that is expressed so that you look good in other people's eyes. If, if you treat other people lovingly so that you will look good in their eyes, that's not love. We call that hypocrisy. That's selfishness masquerading as love. That's not real love. Real love sacrifices what is mine for the good of others, even if they never know what I've done. That's actually God's favorite kind of love, secret love, the love where I sacrifice self for the good of someone else and they never know about it. I once came back from a vacation and my yard was mowed, edged, weedy, did the whole nine yards, but there was no note. There was no indication of who did it. There was no way for me to thank them, no way for me to return the favor. That's agape love. A love that acts for the good of another even when they don't know about it. It's sincere love. It's love that comes from the heart. God loves that kind of love. That's what he's challenging us to give one another. Sacrificial love. Love that constantly always pursues the good of one another even at great cost to self. Sacrifices my own rights, desires, possessions, comforts for your good. That's how God wants us to love one another. That's the big idea of this passage. That's actually the the big idea right there. The whole passage, the whole rest of it, which we haven't even read yet, all the rest of it modifies that command to love one another. So let's look at the rest of it. Let's look at what else Peter says about love. He's going to start actually at the beginning of verse 22 by giving us the prerequisite of love. Look again at the beginning of verse 22. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Now, that's a kind of complicated phrase to understand. Read that two or three times, and and you still haven't figured it out. What in the world is Peter saying? Let me walk you through each word of this phrase. It starts out with the English word since. That tells us that this phrase is the basis for the command that follows. If you are going to love one another, the first part of verse 22 must be true about you. It is a prerequisite. You can't love until you get the first part of the verse right. And then Peter goes on after saying, since, he says, you have in obedience to the truth. It's kind of an odd phrase, obedience to the truth. That's Peter's way of saying belief in the gospel. That's what he means by those words. Keep your finger in this part of 1 Peter and look over at chapter 4. Turn to chapter 4, verse 17. Peter uses similar language. 
Chapter 4, verse 17, he says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, then what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So so truth is gospel. Those are equivalent. The truth of God is the gospel, the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And the gospel includes a command. The gospel commands us to do what? To believe, to trust that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. That's the command of the gospel. So to believe the gospel is to obey the gospel. That's what Peter's talking about. They have obeyed the gospel. They believe that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead. And what is the result? Look back at chapter 1 again. The result of their belief in the gospel is that they have purified their souls. It's a perfect tense verb. It means that something was settled in the past and continues to be true today. Through their belief in the gospel, in the past they were purified and they continue to be purified. Now, this purity that Peter's talking about, he's not talking about purity of experience. They still struggle with sin just like we do. He's talking about purity in the sight of God. They have made themselves pure in the sight of God through faith in the gospel. They are forgiven. Their sins have been removed. They are righteous in the sight of God because they have chosen to believe the truth of the gospel. Then finally, Peter gives us the result or the the purpose for which they believe the gospel. Here's the purpose or result for a sincere love of the brethren. The reason you believed in the gospel, the result of your belief in the gospel, is that you were enabled to sincerely love the brethren. That's that's the result. When you believe the gospel, you become able to give other believers agape love. If you haven't believed the gospel yet, you can't love your brothers because you're not part of the family yet. You cannot demonstrate agape love, God-like love, unless you have believed the gospel. That's a prerequisite for us. So let me ask you, let's pause for a second. Have you purified your soul in the sight of God through faith in the gospel? Have you believed that, that you're a sinner and that your sin separates you from God and there's nothing you can do to earn your way back to God, but that in love God sent his own son Jesus Christ, to take all of your sins upon himself and to die in your place, to bring you forgiveness by his death. And then God raised Jesus from the dead and now offers you the free gift of eternal life if you will simply believe. If you will simply believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, you have forgiveness, you have eternal life, you have an eternal relationship with God forever. That's the only way you can love other people is if you first believe the gospel. Now, if there's something that's holding you back, if you have some objection, whether it's intellectual or something in your past or something in your family, let me encourage you to please, please come talk to me or some other person here at the church this morning. Actually, nothing else I give you in this sermon applies to you. All of the rest of it, none of it applies to you because this is the prerequisite. You first have to believe the gospel so that you can be purified in the sight of God. That's what makes agape love possible. So please come talk to one of us if there's something holding you back from that belief. Now, for those of us who have believed the truth of the gospel, what Peter is telling us here is that Jesus didn't just die for us so that we could go to heaven when we died. He also died for us so that we would be able to love one another. It's his death through the gospel that brings us the ability to love. Okay, so having laid out that prerequisite for love... And starting in verse 23, Peter moves on to the next discussion. He lays out the motivation for love. Why should we love one another? Look with me starting in verse 23. 
For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Now, you look at these verses and you think, what what in the world is Peter doing here? Why is he going off love onto the eternal nature of the word? How does love and the word of God have anything to do with each other? Well, let, let me lay it out for you. Here's what Peter's doing. He's wanting us to understand that for those of us who have been born again through faith in the gospel, we have been born in total two times, right? If you trust in the gospel, you are twice born. And each of your births joined you to a new family. Your, your first birth was biological in nature. It joined you to your biological family, the family of your parents and grandparents and siblings. That birth was, was founded or originated in flesh and blood. Flesh and blood are, are mortal. We, we will all die. And so therefore, the family of our first birth is temporary. Because that family is founded in flesh and blood, which is temporary, so the family itself is temporary. That's just a sad reality of life. My, my, my grandparents are, are both dead. They're, they're no longer part of my biological family. One day my, my parents will pass away. Our families, our biological families are temporary. They do not last forever because they're based on flesh and blood, which does not last. But it's different for our second birth. The second family that we joined is a spiritual family because our second birth was spiritual in nature. When we were reborn through faith in the gospel, we entered the family of God. That new birth originated in the word of God. Not in flesh and blood, but through the word of God that's encapsulated in the gospel message. That's the seed or the foundation of your new life. And Peter goes to great lengths here to show us, unlike flesh and blood, the word of God is eternal. That's why he quotes Isaiah 40 there towards the end of the chapter. He wants us to understand everything to do with humanity, our flesh, the glory of our flesh, everything that we create in this world, everything that humanity does, it is passing away. It is like a vapor, like a a blade of grass. It grows up today, it's gone tomorrow. That's what humanity, that's what flesh and blood are. In contrast, the word of God is forever. The word of God is eternal. It is eternally living. It is eternally true. It is an eternal source of life. And therefore, the family that is founded upon that eternal word is itself eternal. That's the conclusion. Because the word of God is eternal, therefore the family built upon the word of God is eternal. This new family that we have joined is a forever family. We will forever be brothers and sisters of one another. That's Peter's point. So I want you to to do something for me for a moment. I want you to look at the person on your left. Turn right now. Look at the person on your left. Now turn and look at the person on your right. Okay, assuming that all three of you have trusted in the gospel... You're going to be seeing each other forever. You're going to be hanging out with each other for all eternity. These relationships here in this room, these are forever relationships. We're going to be hanging out with each other and getting to know one another for countless billions of years because this is an eternal family. That's Peter's point. These are forever relationships. We're going to be with each other forever. Now, a piece of good news When we die and go to heaven, our sin nature is eradicated and we become much more lovable people. So that's that's the good news here in the room. We will be more lovable people in heaven. These relationships will be easier, but God doesn't want us to wait for then. He wants us to begin to love one another now because this is forever, folks. We're gonna be with one another forever. It's like the difference between summer camp relationships and family relationships. Think back to summer camp. 
If you're a guy, first thing that happens, you go to summer camp and they throw you in a cabin with nine other guys. And and you pick your bunk and then you immediately start to to figure out who of these other boys is going to be my friend and who's not. And that that latter group, it's pretty easy to weed out. You you find the guy, he's the mean guy. We're going to avoid him. And um, oh, oh man, that's a smelly kid. I don't even want to be in the same room as him. And oh man, that's a tall athletic kid. I feel embarrassed when I even stand next to him. So we're not going to do that. So, so you, you, you cut out these people. You choose who you're going to avoid. These are the folks I'm not going to spend time with. I'm going to spend all my time with the kids over here who are like me, who are easy to get along with. Well, that relational strategy works at summer camp, doesn't it? Because you're only there for a week. Next Saturday, your parents show up, summer camp's over, you never see any of them again. You can practice that relational strategy of choosing your friends and avoiding everybody else. Works for summer camp, doesn't work for family. In your family, you may have people you really don't like spending time with. You may have a sibling or a cousin, an aunt or an uncle, even a parent that you really would rather not spend time with. They frustrate you, you just rather not go there, but it doesn't matter, they're your family. Come Thanksgiving, come Christmas, you're gonna see them again. You've got to learn to love these people because they're part of your family. That's Peter's point. When it's family, you got to make it work. We have to learn to love one another because we can't avoid one another. We're going to be seeing one another for eternity. This is a forever family we've joined. So yeah, there may be believers who frustrate you. They hurt you. They anger you or, or they're just so different than you. It's hard for you to understand them. You need to learn to love them. You need to learn to to grow in love for them because you're going to be with them forever. That's how God designed this family. This is a forever family. So we need to begin now to grow in our love for one another. Now that's easier to say than to do, isn't it? We are all sinful, broken people, so we are all unlovely in our own special way. It's hard to love unlovely people like us, so it's hard for us to love one another. How do we grow in God-like love for one another? How do we grow in this self-sacrificial agape love? How do we expand our love for one another? Well, Peter answers that question at the end of our passage. He gets very practical at the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He shows us how to grow our love. And what Peter's actually going to do, he's going to give us two steps to grow in love for one another. The first step is negative. He tells us what not to do, what to avoid if you want to grow in love. Second step is positive. He tells you what to pursue, what to do if you want to expand your love. So let's start with the negative step, chapter 2, verse 1. Peter says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. We'll pause there for a moment. First step that Peter lays out for us are these sins to avoid. He tells us what to rid ourselves of. That's what the verb actually means, put away. It's, it's to rid yourself of something. That word was often used in the, in the New Testament for wiping dirt off yourself or, or throwing away old clothing. You just get rid of it. You don't want any of that on you. And then Peter lists out for us five relational vices Five sins that creep into communities and destroy love, spoil love. Let's look at each of those. Starts out with the sin of malice. Malice is a mean-spirited or vicious attitude or disposition. Now, malice can be expressed in a couple of different ways. Malice can be a desire to cause someone some type of harm, whether physical or emotional or relational. But malice can also be that feeling you get when, when a rival, when, when someone else stumbles, when someone else falls, when, when things don't work out well for that person over there and, and you feel a, a little bit of good about that right here, that's, that's called malice. 
rejoicing over someone else uh, experiencing harm. Love is actually the opposite of malice. Love does not hold on to ill will. Love only seeks, only desires the best for everyone else. Second vice that Peter lists is deceit. Deceit is to take advantage of someone through craftiness or underhanded methods. And, and it includes, of course, lying, outright lying. That is, of course, deceptive. But it, it also includes when we only share half the truth to make ourselves look better. When we distort the truth by only sharing part of the truth, that is also deception. It's a, it's a desire to make ourselves look better by shaping how people see us. That's deception. Love is opposite from that. Agape love is always honest. It is always open-handed in all of its dealings. Third vice that Peter lists out is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy in Greek actually referred to Greek actors. They called Greek actors on the stage hypocrites because they wore masks. That's what hypocrisy is all about. It's wearing a mask so that you don't show the world who you truly are. You show the world who you want them to see. That's hypocrisy. That's what it means. You hide the faults in you. You hide the things that you want to protect, that you want to conceal, and you show the world a different image of yourself. That's what hypocrisy is. It's image management, making yourself look good in the eyes of others. That's actually opposite of agape love. Paul tells us in Romans 12, Let agape love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, that's Philadelphia again, outdo one another in showing honor. I think the beginning and end of this passage is is really a significant contrast. What is hypocrisy seeking to do? When I'm a hypocrite, I'm putting on a mask so that I can get you to honor me so that I can get you to like me. I want your approval. I want popularity in your sight, so I wear this mask. Paul tells us love does exactly the opposite. Love does not seek honor for myself. Love seeks honor for you. Love is always trying to give you approval. It's trying to promote you. It's trying to protect you. It's trying to honor you. That's what love does. It quits caring about me and cares only for you. That's love. It's opposite of hypocrisy. Fourth vice that Peter lists out is envy. Now, envy is a tough one. Envy is all around us. You could also translate this word jealousy. Envy refers to a desire to have some advantage in life that belongs to someone else, accompanied by resentment that they have it and you don't. That's the idea of envy. I want what you have. I resent that you have it and I don't have it. Now, now envy is really hard to fight because it is so prolific in our society. We actually have a multi-billion dollar industry designed to stoke envy within us. What do we call that industry? Advertising. That's what advertising is designed to do. Stoke envy within you. Because envy moves product. If you envy someone, then you will go buy what they have. That's how envy is designed to work. That's how advertising is designed to work. But envy isn't limited to possessions. Envy shows up in all kinds of ways. Anytime that a friend of yours is somehow blessed by God, you'll feel envy creeping in. When your coworker is promoted instead of you, you'll feel envy springing up. If you're single and your friend is single and she gets a date on Friday night and you don't, you'll feel envy springing up. Envy's all around us. Envy's prolific. It it springs up so quickly in our hearts. Envy is there ready to pounce any time God blesses our friends. That's how it works. When God blesses someone else, envy springs up. But love is opposite of envy. Love chooses to rejoice when God blesses a friend. You may not feel happy about it. You may not feel that way, but you choose to say, God, thank you for blessing my friend. Thank you for giving her a date. Thank you for giving him a promotion. Thank you for giving them these things, this house, these possessions. Thank you that you have blessed them. That's love. 
fifth and final vice that Peter lists out for us. Slander in the NAS is actually broader than that. It also includes gossip. The Greek word was used by an ancient Greek author for a slave blabbing the secrets of his master. We call that gossip. That's what Peter's talking about here. He's talking about any time that that I speak to someone about someone else in a way that harms this other person. That's what he has in mind here. Now, now whether it's slander or gossip, it's always motivated by the same things, either a desire for revenge against this person or desire to make myself look better. That's actually what's always behind gossip. I don't know if you've, you've recognized that. Gossip is always an attempt to make me feel better about myself by feeling important, by being the person in the know, the person who has this information. I feel popular. I feel valued when I share this secretive information with someone else. It rewards me. It makes me feel good. We all want to be in the know. That's why we struggle so much with gossip. I'm sad to say churches are fertile fields for gossip. Now, often we don't call it gossip. We, we mask gossip in words like care or concern or prayer. I'm afraid that in churches, a lot of gossip has been shared in the name of prayer requests. I want you to pray for this friend of mine, for this other person, and you share what's going on in their lives. Well, maybe that was just an excuse for gossip. I want to challenge you guys. Sometimes it can be really hard to know, would it be gossip for me to share this piece of information with this person? I I don't know. Is it gossip to say this? I don't know. What should you do? Let me give you a piece of advice. Actually, it's, it's more than advice. This is a directive from your pastor. When you are in doubt, I want you always to err on the side of silence. If you do not know whether it would be gossip to say this to this person Always choose silence. Think about the downsides here. If it turns out that it was not gossip, but you did not share it, what's the downside? Well, not much. Your friend knows one less piece of information. Big deal. That's that's not a downside. But what about if you did share it and it turns out that it was gossip? Well, not only did you sin in the sight of God, but you may cause incredible harm to the person to whom you have blabbed. Always err on the side of silence. Now, if you, if you really are concerned about something, if you think I've, I've seen something or I've heard something and I feel like somebody needs to know, then come talk to a pastor or an elder. We are always appropriate. You can come talk to us. We will help you determine who needs to know this information. If something significant has happened, something scary, come talk to one of us. We will help you process that information. But don't talk to other people, not ever. Love is a vault. Agape love is a vault towards other people. It always seeks to protect and shield other people by by protecting their reputations, by protecting their secrets, by being silent. Always err on the side of silence. Love is opposite of gossip. Love is a vault that protects people. So Peter starts teaching us how to grow in our love for one another by telling us what to rid our lives of what things to remove, all traces of from our lives, these five relational sins. But, but how do we actually do that? How do we rid ourselves of these things? Well, it's, it's actually very simple. You, you rid yourselves of these things by applying the truth you learned in the first half of chapter one. Actually going back to verses one through 12. Remember verses one through 12. What did Peter do? He told us all these truths about ourselves. How God chose us before time began in love for salvation. How how God sent his son to die for us. How God has stored up for us an inheritance in heaven of infinite value. More valuable than all the riches in this world. How, How we are among the most privileged creatures to ever walk the face of the earth because we know Jesus. That was the point of verses 1 through 12. Why do we need to know that? 
Well, think about these sins. Look at these five things. What are these? All of these sins are attempts to protect or promote ourselves at the expense of others. I'm tempted to commit these sins when I believe that I am unloved or undervalued or underprivileged or somehow disadvantaged in life. When I feel bad about myself, then I commit these sins because I want to either protect myself or promote myself at your expense. I want to make myself feel better about myself. That's when I struggle with these sins. If you want to ditch these sins once and for all, then believe the truth of verses 1 through 12. You are not underprivileged. You are not unloved. You are not disadvantaged. God himself chose you in love before time began. God himself has in store for you an inheritance of infinite worth that he will give you one day. You are among the most privileged creatures to ever walk the face of the earth. Believe that about yourself. If you'll believe that about yourself, then you'll quit being tempted to do these things in order to protect or promote yourself. You are not people who need to protect yourself or promote yourself. God's got that covered. He's taking care of that for you. Sooner you begin to, to let go of that desire to protect or promote yourself, the sooner you lay these things aside and begin to truly love one another. So growing in love, it begins with what we set aside, begins with what we avoid. Then Peter turns to what we should pursue. What should we be seeking after in this life? Look at verse 2. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation. If you have tasted the kindness of of the Lord. What Peter's challenging us to do here is while we avoid these relational vices, we should long for the word of God. Peter wants us to understand the, the eternal word of God. It's, it's not only the seed that gave you new life when you were reborn. It's also the, the milk that gives you growth, that causes you to grow up in your salvation. This is interesting language that Peter uses, long for. He's, he's telling us that we should crave for the word of God. We should desperately desire to spend time in the word of God. He uses an interesting metaphor here. He talks about how infants crave milk. Think about infants. I've I've got a couple infants now in my life. They've been with me for about 10 months, Luke and Gracie. And I I can tell you, Luke and Gracie crave milk. They don't drink milk out of obligation. They don't wake up in the morning and say, all right, dad, I know I need milk. The whole American Academy of Pediatrics says I need 24 ounces of it a day. So go ahead and give me my bottle. I need it. No, Luke and Gracie crave milk. Every fiber in their being craves milk. When I wake them up in the morning and take them to the living room to give them a bottle, if it takes me an extra 10 seconds to get that bottle ready, they scream like the world's coming to an end. They cannot live without milk. And that's Peter's point. That's how we should feel about the word of God. We should crave it. Every fiber in our being should desperately desire to be in God's word. It's the milk that nourishes our soul that brings us growth. That's Peter's point when he says that you may grow in respect to your salvation. Spending time in God's word is what causes us to grow in the full experience of our salvation. Remember how Peter thinks about salvation in the book of 1 Peter. Salvation to him is like this great Christmas present that God has given you. In the past, you received it. It came into your hands. That's justification. In the present, you're you're unwrapping it more and more. That's sanctification. You're experiencing and seeing more and more of this package of salvation. In the future, you'll finally fully unwrap it and experience all that God has for you. Peter's point is that more time you spend in God's word now, the more of this package of salvation you experience. The more of it you see, the more you grow into the fullness of salvation. And that growth includes growth in love. The more you spend time in God's word, the more you grow in your ability to love one another. 
Then we get to verse three, the end of the passage, kind of a strange ending to the passage. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, um, if there should really be translated since, Peter's saying, since you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, he's, he's making a promise to them. Why should you long for it? Well, because you've already tasted how good God is. You've already tasted a little bit of God's kindness when you were saved and you liked it, didn't you? You like that whole grace thing, that whole salvation thing, didn't you? You've seen how good God is. The more you taste of him, the more you'll love it. This actually answers a really significant question. When you think about the verb that Peter uses, he says to crave for the word. Well, do I control my cravings? doesn't feel like it. How do I control my craving? Well, you don't control most of your cravings, but you do control this one. God gives you control over your craving for his word. How do you grow your craving for his word? You spend time in it. The more you taste it, the more you'll crave it. That's the point of verse three. If you taste God's word, the more you taste, the more you'll love it. God's word is addictive in the good sense of the word. The more time you spend there, the more you'll want of it. I can testify to that in my own life. I was here at A&M many years ago and uh, I was like a sophomore, I think, at A&M and and, um, I realized I, I really don't enjoy spending time in God's word. It's like a million other things I'd rather do. I'd, I'd actually rather do my studies or, or go play ultimate frisbee or go to the gym. There's a million things I'd rather do than spend time in God's word, but I'm a believer. I know that's really not good. And so I turned to the Lord and I prayed. I said, God, I know this isn't good that I don't want to be in your word. Please grow me to actually want to spend time in scripture. So I prayed that, I think the end of my sophomore year. Not long after, a friend of mine named Darren Smith came and told me about these men's challenge groups going on at Grace Bible Church. Uh, And and one of them that he was joining was led by this old guy named Brian Fisher. And um, I I didn't have anything else to do that semester, so I decided to join Brian's challenge group. And, And Brian took us through the book of 2 Timothy inductively. Rather than just tell us what's going on in 2 Timothy, he, he gave us tools to explore 2 Timothy on our own, to observe the text, to interpret it, to apply it to our lives. And, and I started doing this. I started digging into God's word and discovering what was there and, and finding these truths. Rather than being told them, I discovered them for myself. And, and I found that I began to really look forward to it every week. I started to actually look forward to my time in the word more than my time playing Ultimate Frisbee. I, I wanted to be in scripture. A year passes and God brings back to my mind, Blake, do you remember that prayer? Do you remember when you asked me to grow you in desire for my word? What's happened over the last 12 months? God had fulfilled it. Over those 12 months, I had grown to the point where my favorite point in the week was when I opened the word, opened a concordance and brewed a cup of coffee and sat down with it. That's what I looked forward to. My coffee and the word of God. I loved it. Loved it so much that I went to seminary. Now I'm a pastor so that you pay me to do this. I love my job. My favorite part of my job is that my job is to sit at my desk with an open word of God and a cup of coffee. I love it. I get to study the word of God. I can't believe you guys pay me for that. It's wonderful. I promise you, the more time you spend in the, more, in the word of God, the more you will crave it. It is, it is an eternal word of God. It is God's speech, his revelation to us. It is ever living. It is active. It is supernaturally powerful. It will not disappoint you. If you will just taste of the word, if you will just dig into it on your own, God will cause you to crave for more of it. He will grow your desire for it. And the more you desire it, the more time you spend in it, the more you will grow up in your salvation and the more you will grow to love one another. That's how we grow love. Spend time in God's word, we will grow to love one another more. So I wanna close this morning by drawing a couple specific applications from these two steps. First, take you back to what to avoid. I want to challenge you. What of these do you need to lay aside in your own life? Uh, I can 
pretty much say with certainty when we went through these five things, it was probably at least one of these that convicted every person in this room, including me. Something on that board that I do struggle with. Something on that board that all of us struggle with. I want you to go before the Lord today and I want you to ask God, what of these do do I need to lay aside? Once you discover what you need to lay aside, how do you lay that aside? Well, remember, go back, open up 1 Peter chapter 1 and read verses 1 through 12 and ask God to help you believe it. Ask God to help you believe that he chose you in love before time began, that you are not unloved, that he has in store an inheritance of infinite value for you. You are not disadvantaged. And that in fact, you are among the most privileged people on the face of the earth because you know Jesus. Ask him to help you believe those truths. When you see yourself as privileged, you can lay these things aside. You can quit trying to protect or promote yourself because God's got you. He's got you covered. So ask him to help you see what do you need to lay aside. When, when he opens your eyes to that, confess that to him, admit that it's wrong. Go seek forgiveness if you've hurt somebody, if you've been deceitful to someone, if you've been hypocritical, if you've gossiped about somebody. Go confess that to them. Ask for their forgiveness. That will begin to heal that relationship. It's my first application for you. My second, I want to challenge you guys to ask yourself, are you drinking regularly from God's word? Are you pursuing God's word like an infant pursues milk? They can't make it a day without milk. Can you make it a day without God's word? Are you spending regular time digging into God's word, studying it, reading it, meditating on it, memorizing it, applying it to your lives? Now, the best way that I know to spend time in God's word is to hold myself accountable to it by joining a small group. You join a small group of other men and women and together you dig into God's word. That helps you to grow in your love for God's word. A small group is the perfect context to grow in your love for God's word and your love for other people. It kind of accomplishes both at the same time. Now, there's a lot of small groups going on in town. You don't have to do a small group with Grace Bible Church. Just do a small group somewhere where you are digging in with others into the word of God. If, if you'd like to do it with us, we would love to have you. We have lots of options. We're actually kind of spotlighting this morning our adult Bible fellowships that go on here at Grace Bible Church on Sunday mornings. We have a number of classes going on at 11 o'clock for for adults and college students. We've got Joshua class. We've got kind of the young newlyweds and engaged folks class. Uh, We've got the grad group for those who have just graduated from college. We've got the essentials class. It's kind of an elective going on for eight or nine weeks covering the fundamental beliefs and practices of the Christian faith. I, I encourage you, you can find out more information and actually sign up for any of those right after this service. There's four tables right in the middle of the foyer. Go there, find out more about the adult Bible fellowships that we have. Join one of those and, and you'll join other people digging into God's word. It will grow you in your salvation and your love for other people. Now, if Sunday morning doesn't work for you, if if this isn't a good time, we have lots of other options. We have something called home church. You gather together with men and women of every age, from students to seniors. You gather together in someone's home. Uh, Maybe every other week or every week, you gather together for prayer and fellowship and to dig into the word of God together. Home churches are awesome places to gather with others around God's word. You can sign up for a home church in the foyer this morning or online. There's also men's and women's Bible studies. There's college small groups. We have a ton of options for college students. All that information is online. I encourage you. More than I, I challenge you. You need to be in a small group studying God's word. We all need that. That's the only way we can grow. You cannot experience salvation. You cannot grow to love one another unless you're digging deeply, drinking deeply from God's word on a regular basis. Let's close by turning to the Lord because he's the only one who can grow us in this God-like love. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are the example of agape love. We thank you so much that you are a God who has chosen to love us. You first loved us. We did not first love you.
Lord God, we thank you for your love. We thank you that in love you sent your son to die for us so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be enabled to love you and to love one another. Thank you that you are the author of love. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have this community that we can come on Sunday mornings and join with one another in love and worship and in truth. We pray, Lord, that for all of us that you would grow us. We pray that you would grow our craving for your word, Lord, that we would come to long for it more and more. I pray for every man and woman in this room, Lord. I pray that you would work in their lives such that a year from now or even sooner, their favorite time of the week would be time in your word with a cup of coffee, Lord, that that would just be what they live for. I pray, Lord, that you would help all of us also to set aside these sins that destroy love, convict us, Lord, change us, open our eyes to false things that we're believing about ourselves, help us to believe truth, help us to quit trying to protect or promote ourselves at the expense of others, help us to truly love one another. We pray all this in the name of your son who who so loved us that he gave his life freely for us. Help us to follow his example, to give of what is ours for one another. In the name of your son we pray, amen. All right, God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.